Hello, everybody. This is another episode of The Books We Read. And Regan Schrock and myself are together this evening. He is in Tennessee, and I am in Pennsylvania. And we are back to talk about the books that we have been reading. The book that I am going to talk about in a few minutes is called When Everything's on Fire by Brian Zond. And Regan, what are you planning to talk about tonight? So this one's a a little different for this podcast, but I'm going to be talking about Tintin in the Congo, which is part of the Tintin comic series from the early 1930s. Uh, Comic book. Well, I don't think this podcast has any particular coherence when it comes to literature, so that'll fit right in. And I would love to hear about it. I'm not acquainted with this book or the author. Yeah, so we, we just before we hit record, Jaren and I were going back and forth, and I was like, Jaren, how's your French uh, today? Because the dude's name is French. Um, he's from Belgium, died in the 1980s. But I, I can't figure out for the life of me how to pronounce his name because I would butcher it, and I apologize to all the French speakers out there, which probably aren't any of them listening to this podcast. But either way, um, the pen name he used is spelled H-E-R-G-E. So look it up, I guess, if you want to figure out how to pronounce it perfectly, because I'm sure I will butcher it. So there's a bit of a story behind this book that you probably don't know, Jaron. Um, but earlier this year, I was in Austria, and I have this thing of visiting bookstores whenever I travel, if I can. Well, the thing with Austria, most everything is in German, right? But we found a, an English um, bookstore. It's called Shakespeare and Company. And it's this little hole-in-the-wall place in Vienna. And if you ever get the chance, go there. They're awesome. So it's, it's, it was glorious. But because we're in Europe, you're able to get your hands on some things that you can't necessarily in America. For example, they had a whole ton of Dr. Seuss. Um, some of the Dr. Seuss books that are no longer in print here in America are still being printed over there, or they at least have a way of getting them, which was quite interesting to me. And another one they had is Tintin in the Congo, which I'm somewhat familiar with Tintin. It's an adventure comic from early 1900s out of Belgium. And I'd never heard of this particular edition before. So I was asking the guy there and uh, he said, yeah, it's actually really hard to get because this thing is considered very offensive. And um, yeah, there's, there's some things in it that, that have caused a lot of people to not want it to be sold and printed. So this particular edition is from a British publisher that prints them out of Romania, and they had gotten a stock in. Looked him up here in America. They're going for like eighty bucks on eBay, um, which is really interesting. So I bought one for twelve dollars. It's like a yeah, nice little investment. But I was like, I got to read this thing. What what is all the hype about? Um, so I'll read a slice out of the introduction because they actually published a, a kind of a disclaimer with it. This is just an excerpt. Um, so it says, This English-language edition of Tintin in the Congo, in color, completes the series of 24 Tintin adventures. Um, it's the second one that was published. First appeared in June 1930 in a Brussels newspaper, serialized and then produced as a comic book um, later on. It wasn't translated into English until the ni- 1991. And then this is what he says. So obviously this this story takes place in the Congo, this this um, which would now be the Democratic Republic of, of the Congo, if you're wondering what country that is now. Um, and here's what it says. He's talk, talking about the author. It says, in his portrayal of the Belgian Congo, the author reflects the colonial attitudes of the time. He self-admitted that, he'd per, that he depicted the African people according to stereotypes of the period, an interpretation that some of our readers may find offensive. The same could be said of his treatment of, of big game hunting. 
So I read that and I was like, well, that's interesting. And I started reading through this. And to be honest, I was pretty shocked. It is pretty blatantly um, racist or just degrading to the people of the Congo, making them look like these very ignorant and bumbling fools that the great Europeans have to come in and rescue. And of course, the Europeans know so much more than they do. And and the hero of the story, Tintin, which is this um, boy journalist, basically, um, is really big into like big game hunting and shooting all the wild game he can while he's in the Congo. So there's a lot of kind of nasty things there because a lot of those animals, you know, were eventually hunted close to extinction. And the whole thing is really messy because of the background. So Belgium in the mid to late 1800s didn't really get on the whole colonialist, imperialist type bandwagon initially, uh, unlike France, Germany, Britain, etc. And the king, I think it was in the 1870s, decided that they wanted in on it, found a chunk of Africa that none of the other colonial powers had taken yet, and said, it's ours now. And it's this something the size, I forget how many times bigger than the country of Belgium. It's massively larger. And they basically moved in and used the local populace as slave labor to do all kinds of just, just horrible things, you know, mining and agriculture. And it's one of the, one of the worst genocides or abuses of a people. So like if they wouldn't meet their work quotas, they would cut off their hands um, or just kill them or starve them to death. A lot of really nasty stuff happened. Um, It got so bad that the rest of the colonial powers that were also doing abuses said, okay, you, you went too far and we're, we can't let this happen. So that the, the different European countries actually got together and said, Belgium, you can't do that. That's not right. And the king said, well, we're just going to keep doing it anyway. So there, there's some really nasty history there. And to see a comic book like this, I could see how that could be incredibly annoying, offensive. I'm not sure what all the right words would be. Um, especially if I had come from that area or, or had ancestry from that area. So I'm actually honestly not sure how I feel about it. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Cause the, cause the store owner going back to the bookstore in there in Austria where we, where I got it, um, his opinions were pretty strong. He's like, you know, we don't believe in censorship. This is ridiculous. You can't, I mean, the moment we start banning books and burning books, we're just like the Nazis, basically. Um, and so he was very much like, I'm going to keep selling these things. I'm going to keep selling Dr. Seuss. So I got a Dr. Seuss book that you can't get in America anymore. Um, he was very much, you know, this isn't okay. He wasn't defending the material in the book at all. He was defending free speech. We can't censor this stuff. This is just what it is. It's a piece of history. And we just need to grow up. Basically his point was people need to just grow up and get over it and move on. Um, I, yeah. So I was like, okay, that, you know, <laughs> that was a little interesting. And he had some other colorful words to go with, uh, with those ideas. I don't know, Jaron, what, what do you think? The line between, you know, doing harm and being offensive or, or, um, free speech and how do how do you make all that work i I, yeah i I honestly don't know where to come out on all this i have some uncertainty also um it reminds me of heart of darkness that we spoke about in a previous episode um on the books we read that was also a story set in the congo written the similar in the same area where the europeans were trying to make economic profit um at the expense of the people from the Congo. And 
some people have labeled that book um, incredibly offensive and say that it shouldn't be published or read. Um, and I think I think I see the point if I understand the point in that it is continuing stereotypes that are completely un- incorrect and unhelpful and unjust to the people um, who are characters in the story. And I can maybe I think I could understand a similar case being made for the book that you're talking about, haven't read it, but particularly if it is humorous or makes light of things that should be very, very serious, that could be um, perpetuating an unhelpful attitude. On the other hand, I don't think it has to be harmful. When I read Heart of Darkness, it reminds me of the depravity of humanity and the evils that the and the atrocities that the European um, colonialists inflicted. So, in a way, it's a cautionary tale against the depravity of humanity as much as it is perpetuating um, unhelpful stereotypes that I think all of us know are wrong. But not everybody does, so maybe that's where the harm comes in. Personally, um, I I don't like censorship. I think I value free speech and the ability of people to say what they want, although that can lead to real harm. In a way, I think appreciating free speech and disliking censorship um, accompanies a sometimes unrealistic and naive optimism about the human condition. Yeah, I was I was trying I was leafing through it trying to find a particular example in the book, but basically there's a there's various points where Tintin as the great, you know, fellow from Belgium comes in and and there's these terrible ignorant tribes and and within minutes of course he's convinced them that he's amazing and they basically make him king of their tribe and um you know he knows all this stuff that they don't and they're these poor ignorant people that need a great european person to to lead them um to a better better way and it's just yeah it, it comes across as very arrogant um i it would be utterly fascinating to meet the person who wrote it obviously he's dead now uh, died in 1983 but like what what was going through his head when he wrote it? Because there's some things that you just take for granted. You don't really think about how this may look, you know, 20, 30, 50 years down the road. And to also be very fair to him, it was very early in his career. He was a much younger person that hadn't seen as much of the world. I don't know. Yeah, I think I'm with you, though, on the whole censorship thing. There, You have to be very careful with that. Um, I, I, and here's an example of that. Um, this is full disclosure, but I actually own Adolf Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, and which you can still buy, obviously. And I mean, that's about the pinnacle of hate speech and evil literature that I know of that's at least still available in print. Um, again, I bought that one internationally. I'm not sure how easy it is to get in America. That one was pretty easy to get overseas. Um, but I actually did a little research on it. Have you ever thought about who gets the royalties and the proceeds from Adolf Hitler's book? I have no idea. I, I didn't either, and I Googled it or saw a documentary or something. But basically what they did is they said instead of censoring the book, we think it should stay in publication as a historical piece, and all proceeds will go to a Holocaust fund and help victims and their families and, and museums and things that, that – show the evils of what this book produced. I was like, that's really interesting. Instead of censoring it, they are still, it is still available, but they're using the proceeds in a, in a good way. So I don't know. You could say the same about the communist manifesto, which is pretty easy to get a hold of, um, as well. 
which has also very, you know, inspired a lot of really horrible things um, in the last century. Yeah, obviously we'll never land this, but this is just some things like a comic book started me down this trail and I've been thinking about it a lot the last few weeks, but. Mein Kampf is significantly more um, harmful than something like the Adventures of Tintin. But what do you think the, this is an extreme example, but what do you think the chances are that by virtue of the fact that it's still available in a circulation, Mein Kampf is an instrument in radicalizing people or leading them towards very dangerous positions. I well, guess that's, that's, that's a risk. I mean, it, it is. Oh, it's a huge risk. When, and I've been I, – I, and maybe we'll get into this in a future episode. There's another book I have sitting here that we should review called Twilight of Democracy, which talks about some of those very things, how Germany has, has been struggling some with the neo-Nazi movement. Um, and writings like Adolf Hitler's works and, and other things have been a major inspiration um, or helped contribute to that. So, yeah, like in the name of free speech and not censoring books, you do pay a real price. Um, but the argument is the price will be even higher if we start censoring, which was something communist Russia did a lot of. And we all kind of know how that ended up. It didn't go well because where do you stop? Um, so I don't know. It, it, like, everybody has a different opinion on it. And how do you get everybody to agree and actually do something that works well in a society? I mean, you could say the same about the communist manifesto is still in print as well, you know, and, and I mean, look what Stalin did, you know, look what, look, yeah, I, I don't know. I really don't. Yeah, and I don't know either. But those are those are good questions, pertinent questions. Maybe we should invite thoughts from the audience. Um, I'm curious how you think about censorship. And do you think that books with harmful or incorrect perspectives, how do you think about that? Should books be censored and taken off the market? Or do you think that they ought to be made available to the public? Yeah, I'd, lo I'd love to hear what people think on that one. Because I, yeah don't know where you draw that line i guess yeah help us out so i have a feeling well yeah everybody leave a comment or shoot us an email or hit us up on twitter and something's telling me jaron your book is not a comic book does it have anything to do with what we've just been talking about or are we about to shift gears if i'd make parallels it would be a stretch so i'll say nope in general it has nothing to do with the book that you talked about and it's a very different type of book also <laughs> The book that I'm planning to talk about is called When Everything's on Fire by Brian Zond. It is a recent book that was published um, this year, and we're recording this um, near the end of 2021. So it's been out maybe a month or two, three perhaps, but it's a very new book, and it, it partici participates in conversations that are pretty active in evangelicalism and it's about deconstruction or um, the loss of faith so it's written it's written to a christian audience brian zond is a pastor he's writing to other christians and he's dealing with what happens when um, people either seriously question what they assume to be true about christianity about the church about their faith um or leave it, leave it all together. And I think it fits in well with some of the conversations that happened along with high-profile Christians leaving the faith. Um, Joshua Harris and Audrey Assad come to mind, but I know that there have been others in recent years who have also 
declared that they are no longer Christians. Um, so he addresses some of those kinds of questions. Also, books like Jesus and John Wayne or the podcast series by Christianity Today and Mike Cosper called um, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill have been dealing with um, Christianity gone wrong or Christianity going off the rails in um, particularly the Western world, more specifically American evangelicalism. So it's a book situated in that context and it's a book of its times and something that I have found to be very helpful. So the book is written for a popular Christian audience, not academic. This is written for an average, everyday Christian. But um, Zond has obviously done a tremendous amount of reading and research. So he starts the book talking about Friedrich Nietzsche, and he's one of the original thinkers in what we call deconstruction. He deals with his ideas and those of other, um, thinking particularly of Kierkegaard that he often quotes and alludes to and deals with his ideas. But he also gets into more nitty-gritty parts of Christian experience um, in 21st century America, particularly fundamentalism and the fundamentalist movement. He, very harsh, harshly critical towards it and sees it as not at all helpful for sustaining Christianity, but also something that shares the premises of empiricism and atheism that can end up being very destructive to a person's faith. I'm going to read some quotes. Um, this is a quote from page 28. He says, By misinterpreting the Enlightenment and the corresponding rise of empiricism as an existential threat to the Christian faith, many frightened Christians sequester themselves into panic rooms of certitude. But this kind of darkness breeds monsters. Most doubts, like all monsters, are not that scary in the daylight. Most Christians can deal with the inevitable doubts as long as there is room for doubt. But when a system is enforced that leaves no room for doubt, benign uncertainties can mutate into faith-destroying monsters. When doubts are locked away in a closet of secrecy, they can grow into formidable ogres. He doesn't get explicit there at that point, but when he's talking about certitude, he's talking about um, the apologists who see things that are perceived as a threat to Christianity, and they make a polemical argument to destroy the opponent's perspective that they see as a threat, and in response, they make structures of certainty. I'll just go on here to the next chapter and keep reading where he gets pretty explicit about what he's referring to. I've seen fear-based Christian parents place their children in fundamentalist Christian schools for the sole purpose of shielding little Timmy from the lies of secular science only to see Timmy become an atheist before he's out of high school. When you force Timmy to choose between fundamentalist believism and peer-reviewed science, Timmy may not always be persuaded by the pseudo-apologetics from fundamentalist answer men like Ken Ham. I've seen it happen. So, what he's seeing as a threat to Christianity is not secularism, not, not mainstream science, but movements within Christianity itself, um, particularly fundamentalism and its um, outworking in what he calls pseudo-apologetics. This is utterly fascinating. Does he name other people? Like, how specific does he get? So apparently Ken Ham is on his list. Yeah. Is, is there others? Um, when it comes... This is fascinating. I got to read this yeah. book. Whoa. I'll loan it to you. 
this I had a class. So I had a class on this very topic. I just finished my bachelor's degree and one of the last classes I took was on Christianity and science. Basically, I, I forget the exact title even. And we dove into that concept of like the the pseudo apologists that make they spend enormous amounts of effort making these elaborate arguments to destroy arguments that they feel are threatening to their their belief system their perspective of christianity and just how how you have to be really careful with that and you know the class didn't wasn't really about this is what's right and what's wrong but it was more how we approach those things and and the damage it could possibly do so anyway this is right up my street yeah keep going yeah um to respond to your question i think uh, i don't i don't remember if he quotes any other contemporary apologists or thinkers um when it comes to actually quoting people and dealing with a person's content, um, he talks mostly about Nietzsche and Kierkegaard. But he does he does um, name Ken Ham a couple times as the poster child of the um, of the movement within Christianity that he sees as particularly harmful. So he doesn't really like what Ham has to say, and I think some of it is um, he just doesn't isn't threatened in the same way that Ken Ham is. It, him and many others like him. There's, it's a huge, it's a huge movement within Christianity. But many like Ken Ken Ham see secularism and secular science as a threat to Christianity. Um, Zahn says that he's never encountered a scientific idea that threatens his faith, and he makes a distinction, and that is that Christianity needs to be centered around Jesus and not about around the intellect or facts. So what he sees as the problem is misdirected Christianity that is centered around certainty and facts and intellectual defense of the faith. Zond sees the faith, or the solution to this problem, as centering the faith around Jesus, and the evidence not being empirical scientific evidence, but the evidence being our experience with Jesus. I'm going to read a couple more quotes that sums up his solution. Page 126. Religion that resides solely in the intellect is incapable of sustaining faith in our disenchanted age. In a secular epoch, the Christian will either be a mystic or nothing at all. The tsunami of secularism scouring Western Europe and North America will not debate anytime soon. The spiritual crisis will not be survived by clever apologetics or by waging misguided culture wars, or by pining away for an irretrievable past. If the Christian faith is to survive the tsunami of secularism, it will be because Christians have their own experience with God. The faith of the future will be sustained by an experience, not an argument. As the old saying goes, a person with an experience is not at the mercy of a person with an argument. I'm not advocating religious fanaticism, which is a real malady, or encouraging spiritual boasting, which should embarrass us, but simply stating that a personal witness to a direct experience with God is nothing to be embarrassed about. I found that most people are interested in the stories of our personal experience with the divine. Most people hope that God can be experienced and our testimonies of mystical experience enliven that hope. So, that's his basic argument I'm curious your thought about your thoughts, Reagan. Both of us were pretty heavily exposed to the kind of Christianity that he sees as harmful. You've invested a lot into 
reading and studying from the young earth creationist perspective. I've been heavily exposed to it also, but more uh, more by osmosis and just being saturated in an environment that uses that as the apologetic method and assuming it to be true. So I'm, I'm curious how you respond to what you hear from Zond here, both from that, but also from this class that you mentioned that you recently took. I didn't know that you took that. I'm, I'm curious how that's affected your perspective. Yeah, like, I mean... I- I don't really know where I come out on any of these things to to put that out there for right off the bat. But there is something, especially in more of the fundamentalist flavors of Christianity, that wants certainty about the world. And I think that's one – I have a session I teach on um, conspiracy theories basically. Like why are we kind of susceptible to those things? And one of the appeals of something like a conspiracy theory is it takes something that doesn't make sense – puts it into a nice little box and can explain it to you. And it's like, ah, now I understand how the world works. Well, here's the thing with science. 300 years ago, you could be relatively competent in all major fields of science. If you took a couple of years to study it, went to university, you'd you, you pretty much have it down, right? Now, science is insanely complex. It's, it's to the point, the level of complexity is so high, it's almost indistinguishable from some like magic almost, you know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's things that we just take for granted and they're so complicated. We can never really understand them. Um, there's subfields within subfields within subfields and people spend lifetimes, you know, researching just the the most minute thing because there's so much information out there for average Joe's like you and me, that can feel very overwhelming because we don't know how the world works. Something like young earth creationism can come in and say, oh, we like science too, but we can explain it in a way that everybody can understand. And it fits with our very specific hermeneutic. We have a very specific way of reading the Bible and we can make everything all fit and we can explain it to you in one session in 30 minutes, how everything, you know, Bible and church and science and the universe, it all fits into one narrative. It's that grand theory of everything that physicists have been trying to figure out We've got it. We've got it figured out, and we can beat all the secular people who don't believe in God. We can beat them at their own game because we're better because we have the truth. We have the Bible. They turn. They really, in a sense, turn the Bible into a science book in some in some ways. So once you understand that, that's one of the the core things and why it's so appealing. That that helped me step back from it just a bit, and uh, and yeah, and and I question whether that's a good hermeneutic to base your faith off of, because what happens when those arguments are proved false, um, which has happened quite frequently and is actually a major issue within young earth creationism, how their models have time and again been shown to just not be reality at all, not even close. Um, what do you do then? Now all of a sudden your faith is based on some science models, and now those are gone. And I, and I think that might have some I don't I don't know that that would do something to young people though and and I I haven't figured out what the long-term effects are I mean we don't know young earth creationism is, is a very very new movement um, it's only been around you know what a hundred years you know I mean at least in the in the sense that I'm using it um, what's it gonna do in the next few hundred years of church history we don't really know Um yeah. Anyway, I wrote some papers on it 
didn't come to any conclusions. The professor didn't have any conclusions. It's just one of those things, you know, the church is just going to have to keep wrestling with this one because there's a lot of ways to slice that. Was that, I don't know if that was helpful at all, but yeah, that, that is helpful. And you raise the question, what do we do when what we believe to be true is no longer proved to be true? If we lose our faith, I think that our faith was probably founded on something incorrect. And I think Zond would agree with that. If our faith can survive because of demonstrable scientific fact or a compelling scientific argument, but then we find out that our argument is wrong, um, that we were wrong about something, then we'll lose our faith. I think for many, their faith would not be totally unsettled by learning that what they thought to be true was wrong, either because they've just hardened themselves to the fact and they've chosen to believe what they're going to be regardless of the evidence, or their faith isn't shaken because their faith is actually settled upon Jesus or defended by their experience with God or something other than the fact so I think in, in a way it's actually disingenuous to argue Christianity to be true and to say that we believe Christianity to be true because of what we believe to be the facts, but we're not willing to reconsider our faith if those facts have been removed from us or proved to be wrong. When that's And that's the, one of the fundamental issues with the Young Earth Creationism movement is they say, oh, well, it's, it's about faith and the Bible is true and you can't necessarily listen to secular science, but then they flip it around and say, but science proves that it's true. And then whenever their models are proven wrong, it's like, well, but you have to take it on faith. They, they kind of have it both ways. So you can never lose the argument. And uh, yeah, and I've seen that firsthand. I, I was, I was quite deep in the young earth creationism movement. Um, yeah. I don't know if anybody out there even cares. Institute for Creation Research had a lot of connections with them. I went and visited the Paluxy River tracks, Carl Ball, his whole thing. Um, saw Kent Hovind speak. I met Ken Ham multiple times, went to the conferences. I was published in the Creation um, Research Society Quarterly, um, which is a creationist peer-reviewed um, I science didn't know journal. That. Congratulations. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't a, it didn't go through peer review, but it went through it. It was a debate, open debate process that I took one of one of their people to. Anyway, there was a whole thing, a whole thing. And I and I read all the technical materials, not just the public or like not just the layman stuff, but like the technical science. And that just kept coming up over and over as you have these models that were supposed to definitively prove the Bible is true. And this is, yes, you can have faith in the Bible because we can prove that it's true because da 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 this physics model that we figured out about the stars proves that, you know, the world is only, or the universe is only 6,000 years old. Well, then 10 years later, the evidence is so strong that that model is not true, then they completely redo the models. And this, and I, I have this all outlined in my files, how that process happened and they completely changed the narrative oh actually now the creationist movement says the universe is millions or even billions of years old and it's only the planet earth that is a few thousand years old they totally changed the narrative without batting an eye but then i was like well what about all those people for 30 40 50 years that were putting that were saying to see science proves the bible is right we can have faith and we can trust in the bible because science has us backed up and then when the science didn't come through and it became so embarrassingly obvious they couldn't hold on to it anymore while still calling themselves, you know, intellectually honest. 
then the, all they do is just change the model slightly. And then it's the same tune. If you go and read it now with the brand new model that says total opposite of what the other one said, um, oh, well, science proves the Bible is true. And it's kind of the same old thing. And I was just like, after a while, I got kind of like, well, this is a little, a little simplistic, isn't it? You know, it seems kind of not fair. And I'm not saying the current model is wrong. In fact, I've, I've looked at it pretty extensively. It looks very interesting. And I think it has a lot of good in it that's valuable to science. Um, but then that, that was starting to get old. It just didn't seem, it didn't seem fair. They couldn't lose. And anyway, I wrote a whole paper on it and it gets in the weeds, but it's, it was, yeah, it was interesting stuff mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, definitely. So I would enjoy reading that paper. Well, I'll send it to you if anybody wants to see it. It's, yeah. yeah I think some of us might take anyway. you up on that offer. So thank you. Well, okay. So let, let me read a quote. This is from a young earth creationist himself admitting this. It's a 2007 paper um, that says, creationists have not spent much time developing a philosophy of science. Too often, creationism has been merely a hermeneutic in search of an apologetic. Too few creationists have given themselves the intellectual freedom to examine their own point of view. And this is like coming from inside their movement published within their own journal saying, hey guys, like we, we, need, we need to think about this. Um, he continues with, this is not surprising in a movement dominated by scientists and pragmatic Americans. Uh, I believe such a blind commitment to certain naive uh, enlightenment forms of realism is not beneficial. At the very least, it prevents Christian scientists from exploring the world around them with the freedom, with the freedom a different philosophy of science might allow. And again, this is coming from within the creationist movement saying, guys, we're not, we're not being totally honest here. Like we need to be more... We need to examine our motives and our philosophies a bit more. Um, wow, that's provocative. Oh, I know, I know. It's 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 fascinating, and it was really interesting. That's coming from within their own movement, like. And he's not the only one. I, I go through a whole bunch of people like that. They're just saying, "Hey, like we're starting, we're starting with a hermeneutic, and then we're trying to trying to bring science in instead." Of, and and it, it's. And those two aren't necessarily mixing because we're trying to do two very different things here, um, and it's it's getting it's getting muddled. Anyways, <laughs> sounds like many are calling into question, but then mm -hmm. Ken Ham is getting excited about his Tower of Babel attraction, so he's he's still alive and well, and that organization is yeah isn't showing any signs of being daunted. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And and to be clear for all the listeners, I'm not saying that the movement is wrong at all. I'm I am wanting to point out things within the movement itself that is saying this is we we need to examine this, which is basically the research I was doing on it was was pointing that hey like they themselves are saying there's some things we've got to work on here. Maybe we should take note of that and 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 be honest about it and don't come across as we know everything and we've got it all figured out and there's no problems at all within this movement. That that's not true. Um, there's a lot of disagreement within the movement. Christian apologetics, if they are to be done are worth doing well. So I think that there's definitely space mm -hmm. for self-reflection, no matter how well it's currently be being done or if it's being done badly. Um, let's take steps towards doing better. Anyways, maybe we should back off of this thin ice, and I'll just say I recommend when everything's on fire. I think many of you would find it to be worthwhile. <laughs> and to the rest of you out there listening, I have not become a, an evolutionist and thrown away the faith and all of that, but I do have 
I, I had a lot of fun diving deep into this movement. That's for sure. It's, it's something that I've been pretty close to the last number of years. And I find it fascinating. I have no idea where I'm at on it, but yeah, it's, it's a fascinating, a lot of interesting people. So, yeah. yeah. And before we end this podcast, which we probably ought to end soon, uh, tell us again, Reagan, what, what the book was that, um, you spoke about. So it is called Tintin in the Congo, which again, you probably won't be able to find if you're in America. Um, but yes, it's a 1931 comic book. Okay. And the book I spoke about was When Everything's on Fire by Brian Zond. This is the end of the episode, but thank you all so much for sticking with us. I think we raised several questions here that we would be delighted to hear your feedback on. So let us know your thoughts on censorship, dangerous books, bad ideas, Christian apologetics, and all that. We're interested in hearing from you and open to dialogue. Also, we both have pretty active um, Goodreads accounts. So if you want to find us there, I think we'd be happy to be your friend on Goodreads. So thanks for listening, and we will see you in our next episode.